The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Today's guest is Juliet Shore. She is the author of After the Gig, How the Sharing Economy Got Hijacked and How to Win It Back. Juliet is a sociologist at Boston College, but was previously an economist at Harvard. Her background brings an interdisciplinary feel to her work. Now, most of us are going to have some direct experiences with the sharing economy. Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb have all become familiar brands. But there are many platforms that have become part of what Juliet refers to as the sharing economy. Now, I'm going to warn listeners that Juliet and I don't talk much about politics, at least directly in this podcast. But I think this is an important discussion because it helps us think about institutions. Why do new institutions emerge? How do we shape them to reflect our values? How do they shape our relationships to each other? These are important questions that change how we think about politics and how we think about democracy. Thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen. Without further delay, here is the show. Juliet, thanks for joining me. Oh, uh, pleasure. I love the book. Uh, there's really a lot to unpack here. Um, I, wa- I want to start off with something that I think is actually the central theme of the book. I-, I-, I went over it really deep this morning, and this is really kind of where I want to start. Is um, You describe really a sense of disenchantment in what you describe as the sharing economy or uh, in your title as the gig economy because it was supposed to be about more than money. Can you give a little bit of an explanation about some of the ideals that were really central to the popularity of these platforms? Sure. Uh, the, a lot of them launched in sort of 2008, 2009, and they launched with what I call the idealist discourse, which is claims about the economic benefits, the social benefits, and the environmental benefits. And I just, I want to start out by saying, you know, there's something interesting about this configuration of sharing economy, because although people might think Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, it wasn't just those platforms at the beginning. There were a whole range of what we might think of as community sharing initiatives too. And they were all part of a larger community saying, hey, we need a different kind of economy. Remember, this was the height of the great recession, the financial collapse had just happened. Lots of people were realizing global capitalism isn't working. And what the sharing economy promised was a person, a a, a sort of a person to person economy that was going to 
kind of avoid a lot of the problems of the big corporate players and really help individuals help each other. So we studied, I put together a research team at this time and we studied food swapping and time banks where people are sharing bartering services, uh, a makerspace, which is a, a community uh, site with tools for anybody to use, as well as Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, delivery services and so forth. And in all of these cases, they said it's a better economic arrangement, person to person. It's going to be more opportunity for people. It's going to help you out if you don't have cash. It's going to allow you to make some cash in some of these cases. Uh, it's going to bring people together to create social connection. One of the big themes was we're disconnected as a society. People are lonely and isolated. We need more social capital, to use the economic term and big hopes that it was gonna lower carbon footprints. So if you stay at an Airbnb, Marriott won't be producing, you know, driving, uh, building new hotels. If you go in a, what was called a ride share at that time, you're just gonna be taking a seat in a car that's going somewhere anyway. Now, of course, things didn't turn out like this, but that was the hope. And as we interviewed people who were earning in the sharing economy, who were also consumers and so forth, Many of them really believed strongly in these ideals of, of the sharing economy. And that was a big part of what was attracting them. Not the only thing, but certainly an important part. The way you describe social capital is interesting to me because from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it seems that the platforms actually alienate the customer from the person who's actually doing the work because no longer does the entrepreneur have to go out there and hustle to find the customer. The platform handles that for them. So there's a little bit of a disconnect from establishing real customer relationships, I would think, long-term because you can always find a new one just through the platform and there's a lack of connection on that. Um, can, can you explain a little bit more about why they thought that it would why some people believed that these platforms actually encouraged social capital and encouraged um, connections with new people? Yeah. So let's start with something like Airbnb, because I think it's, it's clear as there. That's a good one. So, yeah. so the idea is, the original idea of Airbnb is you stay in the spare room in someone's house, you get to meet them, you connect with them. And we found a lot of people hosts and uh, we interviewed fewer guests. We interviewed a lot of hosts um, and many of them had a really social experience, which is that they, um, you know, they might have a meal with the people. They would get advice from them. They'd go out to a bar, you know, the whole live like a local because the local was your host. And as long as the hosts were interested in that kind of sociability, it worked. And we found a lot of hosts work. But over time, the platform got more commercial. More and more people were not hosting in their homes. They were just renting a whole place out. Or they, they, they were just commercial entities themselves. So management companies or people running what came to be called ghost hotels because they were illegal and therefore ghosted from the authorities. But they would just buy up whole buildings and turn them into Airbnbs. So, and people would never meet the hosts and, you know, they wouldn't have any connection to them. So it, 
the the commercialization of what was originally more of a person-to-person or peer-to-peer economy really undermined that sociability. In Ridehale, something similar happened, which was in the beginning, it was supposed to be people who were just going places with their cars. Lyft, the, the Lyft cars had a big pink mustache and people sat in the front, they gave a fist bump and it was very sociable. You know, I I took some of those in the early days and you always sat up front and you always talked to your driver. Over time, more and more drivers became full-time workers on on these platforms. Nothing really different than a, a cab driver in lots of ways. People began sitting in the back, began treating the driver like a service worker and things. and, And so the whole interaction changed to the point where Uber put in a feature, which was a, called a mute button, but which some people described as a shut up and drive, where if the driver was trying to make contact and connect, the passenger would like press that button and say, get out of my face. And so that, those are examples of the ways in which, you know, platforms that originally had that social dimension got kind of commercialized and it fell out. That said, there are still some platforms which have it. So um, there's a platform in Europe called Blah Blah Car, which is a long distance. It is a true ride sharing platform. So somebody's going a long distance you can uh, get a seat in their car. You pay a small amount just to expenses. And that's become a place where meeting people is actually a part of it. Or couch surfing, which always had, couch surfing is Airbnb without payment. So people who are offering couches or room, you know, bedrooms in their house free. And the, the social connection part is key to it. And it's also, you know, a community where people then, you know, they do it, you do it for someone, you get, get it back. It's a reciprocal kind of thing. And that turned into sort of a, you know, a hookup, a meetup platform for people looking for romance, sex, whatever. So <laughs> some, of them, some of them did actually engender real social connection. Uh, yeah, the, a little nefarious sometimes <laughs> the way you just described that. But um, the uh, I, I found it interesting the way that you talked about the difference between supplemental versus dependent earners, because my background in in terms of jobs that I've had going all the way back to high school and college is you kind of understand that these these programs, if you're going to make it a career, I mean they they can they can really dominate your life because you're constantly on the hustle. Um, you're constantly looking for that next, next gig to be able to get the next thing. It makes a lot of sense to me as a supplemental learner because you look at it and go, hey, I've got some extra time. I can pick and choose when I work. If you do it during peak times, I assume you can make way higher earnings. Um, I think of it a lot like a restaurant, a waitress or a waiter you know that the majority of your money is coming during the dinner rush. So if you could choose to just work during the dinner rush, it would be great. Um, but a lot of the people that are dependent earners you describe are trying to make that dinner rush money all day long. Um, 
the the thing that got me is I understand why some people might do it because they have to. Why did some people do it because they want to? Do the as dependent earners, you mean? Yes. Yeah, because there's a little bit of idealism that you describe that, hey, I can get I can solve the problem of work, I can get rid of the boss. But it 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 feels like it's not as good of a deal as doing a full-time job if you can get one. Yeah. Well, the first thing to be said is, you know, for a lot of people, the time it was timing with the labor market. So you had the the collapse of the economy and a lot of college students and others, but coming out of school or high school, but, you know, most of the people, especially in the early days were, were college educated that we interviewed um, and they couldn't get full-time jobs. Some of them were graduating into, you know, careers in journalism, communications, et cetera, things that a lot of, a lot of people want to do, but that, you know, that's a, an industry where the full-time jobs are really disappearing. So some of them got into it for that reason. Some of them, it was more, uh, we had some like refugees from corporate America who just couldn't take the the stress of the full-time jobs and they were trying to piece together a living. And then we had also a, you know, a whole other group of people who were trying to make businesses or careers in often it was in creative industries. So in music in film production, et cetera, where it's really hard. It's really hard to get that business going. So they're doing that on the side, but it's not really making money for them yet. So they're doing this full time. We had one interesting guy who was pretty successful as a freelance video production, music and video. But that was that freelance stuff that he did was stressful and taxing and he was making uh, trying to uh build his own business outside of that freelancing and so he he preferred to do task rabbit because it was a little more you know low stress for him and that way he had more energy to focus on his company so usually usually people weren't doing this in uh be where they had like really good full-time options. Um, one or two people who just started it. And then as the labor market picked up, the economy got better. They probably could have found full-time jobs, but they did like the freedom of no boss, uh, the flexibility. And so especially we had one guy whose wife had a full-time, you know, whose wife had a full-time job and he was considering just sticking with this, you know, for, for a long period of time because there was the benefits from her job and, you know, enough stability in the family, household income that it could work. You, you spend a lot of time talking about TaskRabbit. I'm sure people are very familiar with Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. They're very big platforms that are very um, widely used. But what's interesting about TaskRabbit was it kind of connected back to the the way that you talk about a servant class, you talk about the way that it changes the diet. I mean, you're literally just doing tasks. Can you explain a little bit about what TaskRabbit is? Yeah. So TaskRabbit was a sort of general task platform that offered pretty much anything that was legal. You could, and it started with a, a customer, a client would post a task, something they need done. It could be anything from 
come and help me deal with the chaos in my house or clean my house, a pretty standard task, or mm. uh, drive me somewhere, assemble my Ikea furniture. That was a really big one on TaskRabbit. Um, and in the end, after you know almost 10 years, uh, Ikea bought TaskRabbit. So, um, or other things, just quirky things. We had people on TaskRabbit where the task would be, uh, take your iPhone and FaceTime me around Faneuil Hall, which is a, a Boston, a big Boston tourist attraction, or, um, uh, you know, write a letter of recommendation for me. Okay, quasi-legal, unethical. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, just, you know, weird uh, uh, testing apps. That was a common one. Uh, so, uh, oh, d- dressing up in costumes for events. We had a lot of people who did that kind of thing. Event planners would hire people in TaskRabbit a lot. That, that reminds, the dressing up in events kind of reminds me of uh, the new Korean movie Parasite that just won the Oscar, yeah. where you have that sense of uh, exactly what you talk about on TaskRabbit, although they're employees, but um, the idea of there being a class difference between them that you're being asked to do this humiliating, in this case, they're being asked to do this humiliating task at a uh, birthday party and they feel very used based on the situation and everything. And you talk about that on TaskRabbit because you have very white collar background people doing very menial tasks. One case, even somebody's asked to go get a latte for $8 um, and, and of course she refused to do that on, on this one and felt very humiliated that that was even a task on the, on the app, if I remember right. Right. But that's a com. that was a really common one, you know, that kind of a thing. And she's like, you're lazy, get off your butt. I'm not doing that for you. Or even someone, when she would, she would find, uh, you know, see tasks where it was people her age who just weren't, had more money than she did. And, she was trying to pay down debt from school and, uh, you know, go to the grocery store for me. And she's like, go to the grocery store for yourself. But, and one day someone from her high school class posted and she felt really, really uh, like, you know, deeply threatened in terms of her identity. But um, we had a really interesting uh, person who'd been on both sides of TaskRabbit to speak to the, the servant question. We call it a kind of a servant economy. Um, and she'd been a tasker herself. And then she actually kind of got really successful with a business. And now she needed to hire taskers. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, that she really tried hard to remember what it was like on the other side, but she found herself increasingly slipping into a very dehumanizing uh, attitude toward the taskers and she was saying like just shut up i don't really want to talk to you just do the job and leave me alone um you know which was also contrary to the the ethos of the platform which also had that you know person to person thing so there's it's there's something really structural in that inequality um it comes up even more starkly in the delivery on the delivery platforms because you know what some of the couriers would tell us was so many of the deliveries and these are typical almost all of them are prepared foods you know people getting takeout like it's like uber eats we weren't doing uber eats but uh another company that uber just purchased so um they they would have to 
delivered to these big luxury apartment buildings downtown. And uh, I remember one, one uh, interviewee talking about how he got there with the food, he walks into the lobby, the doorman, you know, takes a kind of superior attitude toward him and say, you can't come in this way. You've got to go around to the poor door. And the poor door, it's actually called that. The poor doors are, um, well, they're servants' entrances or service entrances. They, or, and poor doors are in these buildings that get tax write-offs for having a few affordable uh, income apartments but they won't let those people use the same door as the, the full paying tenants and they create what are called poor doors. So it just really built into the structure of demand, uh, you know, people working really hard for these minimum wages, basically uh, delivering to people who have so much money they can, you know, they don't have to worry about what it costs. Yeah, I definitely thought the task rabbit was really interesting because it literally created exactly what you described as a serving class. Now, one of the things that was really kind of exacerbated that though was the fact that the people doing the tasks are white collar and they're constantly doing blue collar tasks. Can you describe a little bit about um, why these platforms seem to attract a white collar background as opposed to people with more of a blue collar background that actually traditionally would do uh, manual labor, that that was, that was the things that they were sometimes even attracted to um, doing in terms of their work. Why was it that they weren't more prevalent on the apps as opposed to people that seemed to be facing like a class dissonance? Yeah, so part of it is the sort of the state of technology when these platforms launch. So I know it seems like it's been around forever. iPhone was came out in 2007. The platforms launched 2008, 2009. So the first people who go to them, although they weren't mobile apps to begin with, they were on websites, but they migrate pretty quickly. And it's possible that some of these also started with mobile. I don't, I don't remember if Uber started mobile, but... Mm-hmm. It, it probably did. The point is that um, the, it was a, a more highly educated, younger demographic who were sort of keyed into the, this kind of technology. So a lot of people didn't have smartphones or, you know, didn't have laptops at home and broadband and, and so forth at the beginning. So that was part of it. And they also marketed to these people because... Um, it was on the one hand, they, these were side hustles, as Uber calls them, you know, side gigs to begin with. They sure. start for most people as full time. They also wanted it, they marketed it as really hip and kind of trendy and cool um, as a way of getting these folks. And I think that one of the things was because the customer base was white and highly educated and pretty well off they the companies must have realized that having a worker group you know the workforce in that same demographic would provide more comfort to the customers because remember now we're talking about 
situations with a lot of risk in them. You're getting into a stranger's car. You're letting a stranger into your house. So people are going to be much more likely to feel confident doing that if it's somebody who looks like them, same social class, same racial group. Uh, we call that homophily, love of self. Um, but I think that was a really, it, it hasn't been written about, but um, I think that was a big uh, part of this because um, in a normal, a conventional business, the business does all the vetting of the person. So, and you, so you have the trusted trademark and the brand name and so forth. So you feel comfortable going into a yellow cab because you know they've done all the background checks and they keep the cab safe or you feel comfortable going to a Marriott because you know, you know, they're going to do certain things. Now you're going into, into the car or the home of an unknown person um, or you're letting, in the case of TaskRabbit, you're letting an unknown into your home because a lot of the tests were home-based. So um, I think that's, that's part of why they went for that demographic and it was also technologically the one that made sense. Now, over time, as these services have become normalized, where you're talking about, say, in ride hail and delivery, they, the, the labor force has changed. So in ride hail, it's predominantly, um, in the big cities, it's uh, immigrants, uh, black and brown um, men mostly, not only, but um, that's, you know, that's a change from where it started. Sure. Um also interesting because the ride hail you, you mentioned actually has the worst payouts for people, and yet it attracts people who probably need the money the most. Right. The people who don't have other alternatives. I think that's what's really key about it. Um, sure. Now, I found it interesting because the there was a part in your book that you talk about, and this is uh, specifically Airbnb where one of the people begins a hashtag Airbnb while black because there's a lot of racial discrimination. Um, and you just hinted at that just a second ago. You mentioned how people want people that look like them, people that are the same class, people of the same race. It's interesting because there's a sense of sharing and community, but it perpetuates, it actually exacerbates oftentimes some of those racial stereotypes. Um, is there any way for a platform like Airbnb or even Uber in some cases to be able to um, resolve that while still empowering individuals to kind of choose their, choose their driver, choose their location um, and everything else? Is, is there a way to kind of resolve that with those platforms? Yeah. Well, Absolutely. So really early on, I was concerned about this on Airbnb, even before the hashtag came out, because it, it, it just seemed obvious that this is something that could happen, that hosts could reject guests based on their skin color. And that because it, there were photographs, it was all photograph based on these accounts. And I was in, uh, I had a couple of conversations with Airbnb. I had you know, some context there. As I said, I was one of the earliest people studying this. And so they were interested in my work. And I said to them, look, you know, I think what would be really good is to do a study of racial dynamics on the platform. 
because I wanted to see how much of this was happening. And uh, they came back and it was like, no way. We are not, no way. So, and it was the one topic that was like a really no way. Now it, it turns out they never did want to collaborate with me. And I, I, in the end, probably wouldn't have wanted to do it with them because they put really strict uh, conditions on giving their, you know, collaborating uh, where the researcher lost independence. Did, so did, I, they, did they say no way because they knew there was racial discrimination or because they just were so idealistic that they thought it was impossible? No, no. I think it was just a hot, too hot button a topic. They, they probably were worried and they didn't want to know, or they might've known, or I, I have no idea. I mean, it, okay. so the answer to your question for Airbnb is it's simple to get rid of racial discrimination and the way you, because they have all the data, they know which hosts are discriminating and turning down black or Brown guests. It's right there in the data. It's, it's simple to figure out. They can deactivate those hosts. They can warn them. They can, you know, there are any number of things they can do. Even something very basic, like getting rid of pictures so that it becomes harder to discriminate against uh, by skin color. Um, I mean, you could still use some names or maybe, you know, mm -hmm. some other things that might be racial cues. But um, if, if you got rid of the, the pictures, Researchers think that would do a lot. They, when all of the, the, uh, pictures you know, of the hosts as well as the guests. Right. Okay. So the, because one thing about, I mean, the Airbnb while black was about discrimination against guests. Yes. By hosts. There's also discrimination in the other direction, which is going to ask about that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> not wanting to stay with hosts of color or paying, paying lessons of, that's a little bit less well-established. Um, but, but, um, what we, so, uh, when everything came out and there was a, a study done by some economists at Harvard business school, what's called an audit study where they made up names of guests and some were black names and white names. And, you know, the black names got turned down. They're fake. There were fake accounts. They got turned down sure. more readily. Um, Airbnb said it would uh, downplay photos. So it did try and sort of get people to use pictures of their listings, for example, or, you know, not have uh, photos, but it refused to eliminate photos. And there's other research showing how the photos themselves are really an, an important part of the discrimination. So I, I don't think it would be hard for them to get rid of discrimination on the platform, but they're not willing to take that you know, step uh, either to to deactivate. So they have a pledge now that if you're a host, you have to pledge not to discriminate and so forth. But the other thing is that it's uh, the government and the courts could say Airbnb is subject to the same anti-discrimination laws as hotels because it is effectively acting like a hotel. So take away that right now a host has the right to discriminate by race they're not covered by an anti-discrimination law because those don't cover people who have just a small number of, um, you know, it's called the Miss Murphy, yes. Murphy exemption. If you rent out, you know, a room in your house, you're allowed. So. Which, which obviously 
it can make some sense, not because of the discrimination, but because of the idea that you want to allow somebody who's putting somebody into their house long-term to have some sense of uh, being comfortable with the person. And it just becomes difficult to enforce at a certain point, you know, um, especially just for a single individual. But at the same time, you're talking about Airbnb, which is not only extremely large and affecting a large number of people trying to travel, but could potentially be destroying the infrastructure of hotels long-term by making them unprofitable if they're squeezing them out. I mean, there might be a point that there's just fewer options for somebody who's a minority if Airbnb was truly successful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it changes the marketplace in a way that just a single individual doesn't do because of uh, the push for scale, I would imagine. Yeah. The, the so concern of Airbnb is, is uh-huh. there's mm-hmm. been a bifurcation in the market where the business travelers are still predominantly hotel-based and the personal are more Airbnb-oriented. Um, but, you know, they are eating – Airbnb is eating into hotel uh, – it's pretty different than ride hail where ride hail because it was breaking the law. It wasn't following regulations, licensing, etc., And because of the, the particulars of a, the highly regulated taxi industry, um, Air, uh, ride hail was just able to knock off the taxi industry pretty quickly. Um, yeah. Whereas it's a little bit different in Airbnb, but I, 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 I absolutely uh, agree with your point. And the, you know, in the same way that the courts have said Uber is a transportation company, you really should think of Airbnb as a hotel and it should, these discrimination, anti-discrimination laws should apply. And there, there are some court cases, uh, but on that, so far, nothing, you know, big has happened. Now, you mentioned the most obvious part about eliminating discrimination on Airbnb which is the photos, trying to make it so that somebody who is um, African-American could actually find a place on Airbnb and possibly even if they were hosting that they wouldn't be discriminated based on race. But you mentioned on, but there's potential for new types of discrimination once you eliminate that first hurdle. And we see that in Uber where they mentioned you had one case of a person who mentioned that they would get poor reviews possibly based on, on purely based on their race or their background or their immigrant status. Is it possible that Airbnb, other platforms can have that same type of discrimination? Um, is it possible to eliminate that type of discrimination without, without that personal connection of a boss who actually knows you and knows the situation? So, yeah, this is really interesting, and we've done a bunch of work on reviews, race, racial discrimination and reviews. So the, what most scholar, the scholars who study this think is that reviews will reduce discrimination because it gives real information about the people. So if they're good at what they're doing, people who might tend to discriminate based on what what economists call statistical discrimination. So like the idea is that a group is, you know, on average, let's say less trustworthy that, you know, because we're talking about trust issues here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or if people think they're less trustworthy on average, 
someone will just discriminate against all members of that group. But then if they have information that actually this is a trustworthy person, they won't do it. Well, first of all, that whole idea of statistical discrimination is based on a really racist fallacy, which is that uh, you know blacks are less trustworthy or brown people are less trustworthy. But that that's the way economists have have thought about it. And that's what the literature, you know, many researchers were thinking. And there are some studies which show that, that people who have a lot of good reviews, um, if they're black or brown, won't uh, suffer as much from, uh, by being turned down by whites. But they have to get the good reviews. They have to get the good reviews. So one of the things we found is it's harder for a person of color, a black or a brown host on Airbnb to get the reviews. But we also see on a lot of these platforms, uh, black, uh, brown people getting lower reviews. And that can just be because you have racist passengers because the whole quality control and HR and performance and all that has been outsourced to the customer. So if you have a racist customer base, you're going to get racist reviews. And that's just the way it is. And that's what some of these drivers are complaining about. Um, uh, whether And it's, it's also, it's racism not just based on uh, skin color, but also on national origin, on religion. So you have Islamophobia among the uh, population. And so, you know, clearly Muslim drivers talking about getting bad ratings because of that. And so it, it's definitely a problem. And all the studies that I've seen that have looked at uh, racial discrimination on platforms, whether it's on TaskRabbit, on Uber and, and Lyft, Airbnb, um, I'm trying to think if there are any, any others, they all show the presence of racism. And it's not surprising. I mean, it's a racist society, right? It's not as if it's going to magically disappear on the platforms, although that is what a lot of people kind of hoped for and thought might happen. It's, it's interesting because I feel like it, well, in your book, the introduction, you talk about the problem of work and the idea that, hey, wouldn't it be great if we get rid of bosses? And it's interesting because I've, I've, you know, my day job, I work um, where I manage a team that I literally hire, train, manage, do the whole whole thing, and I did everything from scratch in terms of hiring my team. And it it is a uh, it is a uh, multiracial team as well, so I know the the challenges in being able to recruit uh, people of. Uh, you know, different backgrounds. I know the challenges of managing them. I've been through the experience and, you know, and making sure that you're not putting your own bias in when you're making decisions. It's, it's not as easy as, as some people I think think that it is to make sure that you're doing justice and everything in terms of that. But I think that this definitely the research and the discussion shows that there's a lot more value to having somebody who's a boss that's a real person that can look at the person themselves than, um, than just saying, hey, we can just get rid of it and use an algorithm instead to kind of make those decisions. Also found that it's interesting that there's a lack of, you don't get into it, but there seems to be a lack of training um, 
within these people that they need to actually handle all of that themselves. So if they have a couple bad reviews early on, that probably offsets their entire career in terms of that platform going forward, rather than having somebody there that can say, hey, this is how you do it. This is how you treat people. This is what you do. I, I just can't imagine that you can have a digital platform with a proper onboarding that compared to traditional workplaces. Yeah. Well, let me take that first, because it's an interesting question and one that I don't think anyone's written about yet. But so the, as you said, the onboarding processes are really minimal. Um, you know, some members of my team went to some of them there. Uh, some of them have in-person onboarding. Others have just digital onboarding where you, you know, you watch mm -hmm. videos, but what's happened is that online these worker forums have developed they've sprung up where the more experienced workers are helping uh the newer people with how to do things so there's a lot of information on the on the internet there are tons of videos about how to be a a, a ride hail driver how to be an instacart shopper and so forth so it's it's do-it-yourself training that you know, really just out of the goodness of people's hearts has developed. It's not the companies. Uh, so that's just another way in which the costs of all of this have been pushed off onto the workers rather than assumed by the company. So you're absolutely right. I think to your, to your, um, and one other thing to say is, you know, some of these are, uh, while the mastering the app may be a little bit complicated, Many of these tasks that people are doing are things that they're doing and they that they really know how to do well already, like driving or house cleaning or shopping, etc. I mean, those are some of the biggest markets. Um, doing the work itself. Uh, so the other the other issue about life with the boss. I mean, I think it's because there aren't enough bosses like you. Uh, you know, it's uh, the life without a boss is a lot more appealing if you're in the lower wage part of the labor market so for example on TaskRabbit, we have people who you know had other kinds of jobs they might have been baristas at starbucks mm -hmm. or they worked in catering or other things where where the authority structure and the bosses can be can be really a drag and people really love that being able to have a lot more self-determination and autonomy at work um and the other thing is for for many people that flexibility it's not just something they want it's something they have to have in order to work so we had one person who uh worked full-time at a hotel downtown unionized job you know decent job got, got divorced had responsibility for the kids could no longer keep that full-time job. And so worked part-time there, but then took on Uber and TaskRabbit so she could pick her kids up at work, uh, at school, after school. Um, another, uh, other folks have found uh, interesting work by a woman named Catherine Hill at, at University of Texas. Uh, high, high numbers of uh, disabled people working on these platforms uh, where their disabilities made it impossible for them to know day to day or even hour to hour whether they'd be able to work, you know, just because of their illnesses and un the unpredictability of their illnesses. So that flexibility that people talk about is, is really important for a lot of the workers. And, and flexibility has become 
extremely important in the workplace in general. Um, it, it, trying to manage, um, okay, so uh, we kind of mentioned about multiracial, but then having um, having men and women in the workplace and giving women opportunity oftentimes requires even men these days opportunity that have children giving them the opportunity to be able to work, be able to have the sense of saying, Hey, I understand that you're 15 minutes late. I get it. You, you know, there was an issue with, with school being able to overlook that stuff is really important. The thing that bothers me on some of these platforms is while it offers flexibility, there's also very firm rules without much um, opportunity to dispute them and say, hey, but this was the exception. And you mentioned a number of times that people felt that there were exceptions and they didn't have anybody to, to discuss it with. Yeah. And that's, I mean, ride hail, it's just endemic and the complaints are endemic. Over time, the companies have added more capacity for dealing with that a little bit. Um, or they've, some of them have gone in the other direction with TaskRabbit. You know, in the early days, the, the, they called them rabbits then. The, now they call them taskers. Uh, they would say the platform really had our backs. So if there was a problem with the customer, they would typically take the point of view of the, of the worker. And that switched. And that's also switched a lot in some of the other platforms where the customer is right. And so... If you have a customer who's complaining, whether it's justified or not, it's more likely that the worker's going to have to bear the brunt of that. Um, and, and so that's, a, that's a, um, an ongoing issue. And not all the platforms have uh, bilateral, you know, double uh, ratings. So in some of them, the, the workers can rate the customers, and, um, but not, not in all of them. I have heard, I don't know if it's, true or still true that on uber if you're a poorly rated customer you know because you've been a jerk or you know whatever you've done you will get paired with a poorly rated driver (laughs) 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 that's uh that's interesting it's also interesting how i would imagine that would exacerbate the problem because you probably continue to rate the drivers really poorly and probably get rated poorly as a result that's that's interesting. Um, the I want to I want to get to an idea that was really interesting to me early on in your book. You talk about these companies oftentimes grew out of San Francisco, the Bay Area, which we all identify today as Silicon Valley. But my father's generation would have identified that with the counterculture movement, and you link the two, uh, talking about how this kind of created what you describe as a California ideology. Um, here, I pulled the uh, the idea that people are, uh, there's kind of a sense that almost a libertarian ethos that, hey, things can become better if if we just move towards this technology where we kind of create a utopic vision. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the California ideology? Yeah, and that actually is a term that some other researchers developed. So it's a what we also call cyber utopianism, the idea that the technology itself is going to create this wonderful utopian society because it's supposed to be a freeing technology, so it can free us from work in a corporate setting, we can earn our living on the internet, or 
it's an egalitarian technology. Everybody's just a user and we're all the same. Um, as community. Um, and in the early days of the computers, you had these homebrew clubs and these use the user net, use nets, uh, where individuals were just sharing and collaborating uh, as a community on the internet. And that whole idea about the kind of utopian possibilities of the internet was it carried over into the sharing economy. We talked early about the quote unquote idealist discourse and it was the idealist discourse was just another version of that cyber utopianism um, in many ways. And what's interesting is that in the same way that cyber utopianism and the Californian ideology ended up kind of veering into a kind of really problematic, kind of uncritical corporate ideology, quote unquote, free market ideology, which has given us these toxic platforms like Facebook, um, also ended up giving us Uber. Uh, so it's, you know, part of it is, is the uncritical, uh, the, an uncritical stance toward corporate power, and the, the critique of the government, I mean, in both of them, you get this very anti-government, quote-unquote, white, you know, kind of that quote-unquote libertarian stance, which allows the platforms to just develop into whatever they want. And in some cases, they develop into predatory institutions. And it, it's interesting the way you describe the hope of the system and then it kind of becoming more negative. It reminds me a lot of the way Larry Diamond has kind of shifted from talking about liberation technology in terms of the internet towards recently in Journal of Democracy, he talks about uh, the threat of postmodern totalitarianism now in terms of Facebook and everything. Exactly. I mean, these entities just got so big and so powerful. And, you know, in both cases, the idea was that the, you know, they were able to fend off all types of regulation and kind of the idea that they have, a, you know, they owe something to society and so they have to act in a certain way, whether it's they're not allowed to be discriminatory or they're not allowed to be predatory or, you know, they can't dominate the market in such a way that they become monopolies that then leave the consumer or the worker with, you know, little recourse um, so, yeah, it's been a really analogous uh, development. And, it, you know, no surprise. I mean, it's often some of the, you know, who were the early investors in Uber? Well, Google and, you know, I don't remember if Facebook was. But, you know, the, this is a very intertwined uh, thing. This sharing economy is a, it's a kind of, you know, it's a room within the larger mansion of tech. Of course, of course. I... I, I want to read out one of the quotes that I pulled from your book because I thought it was really interesting. will help us get to some other ideas. Um, you mentioned regarding the California ideology. Uh, in retrospect, we see that entitlement played an important role in solidifying the California ideology. Adherents were mostly white, highly educated, well-off men who lived in a bubble of privilege they failed to recognize it's not surprising they came to believe that technology would be sufficient to solve the problem of social inequality. Having, uh, having known a lot of people that fit that exact description, because um, I, I grew up in the libertarian movement, uh, I've known plenty of people that 
literally were computer programmers that thought, hey, if we just put it on the internet, that's going to solve everything. Um, it's it's very interesting how it, it literally was. That's an exact description of of how I would see a lot of those people. Um, I want to I want to take that quote and kind of move that to an idea of outside of the platforms that were about monetary. You talk a lot about platforms that were truly nonprofit and sharing, and still had some of these same issues. Um, you talk a little bit about um, the snobbery in terms of some of those platforms. Um, can, can you kind of describe, um, the food co-op that you mentioned in the book briefly? Yeah. So we studied, um, what was called a food swap Mm -hmm. and it was started by, uh, a couple of people. What they had, uh, purchased what are called CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture Shares. Mm-hmm. And what happens with the CSA is, you know, when the harvest is really bountiful, because you're getting a share of the harvest, you get tons of something. And so the, they, the founders were people, uh, three women who were single, and so they didn't have families to feed, and they'd have too much of something, and they would start making something. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could, like, make something with this and then swap it out for something else. So it wouldn't go to waste. So they started this food swap. Food swaps were started in Brooklyn, kind of a trendy thing, but yet yet another like typical sharing economy kind of idea. And um, they had this idea it was going to be reclaim your pantries, bring healthful food to uh, residents in the inner cities who didn't have access to it. And so a lot of nice goals. Um, but they turned out to be very picky and persnickety in terms of what they would trade for. And things got really kind of out of hand. The food slope. So we, we sent a researcher there for the first, you know, at the very beginning, cause we saw it when it was being founded. So we followed it, um, our researcher went to every swap for a year and a half and, you know, it, it died after about a year and a half. People would come and if they brought something that was kind of ordinary, they would, they would, you know, nobody would want to trade with them. And, you know, first timers would come and they'd have to take all their food back. And if you didn't <laughs> have the right packaging, you had to have it in a Mason jar. If you brought a plastic thing, people wouldn't take it. And, you know, so they were just like, really snooty kind of foodie snooty uh even within this kind of alternative ethos so it wasn't like fine french dining snooty but it was a kind of alternative snooty um so it you know it was too bad because it was a it was a good idea um but we found a little bit of that at at some of the others too which is the uh the makers the makers really got my attention down on looking down your nose at so the makers were like into all this really exotic making and very wasteful making like making things that would you know spend weeks on building a robot to have a robot competition and the robots would just kill each other and Mm -hmm. you had to have a certain amount of privilege to be able to spend your time making things just for the purpose of destroying them and the, the people at the makers that just weren't the people at the maker space who were there to just like fix their household stuff or 
you know, build useful stuff so they didn't have to buy it or whatever. Um, they were kind of looked down on and it was, you know, the people building these really impractical single use things or just things that really had no, um, no, uh, no, yeah, no practical value. Um, you, you refer to the exotic. The exotic, I think it is. really exotic stuff. Yeah. Like really weird beard cozies. Or one woman was making a different sex toy in every workshop at the at the makerspace. Or um, they had these bicycles. They built single-use bicycles. They'd spend all this time building a bicycle. They'd ride it once and then they'd trash it or stuff like that. Which I... I can appreciate the idea of saying, hey, it's something I want to do. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, it's, it's something that I, I want to do. I mean, for Pete's sake, I, I do a, a blog and a podcast about democracy. You know, um, that's, uh, it, It's definitely something I can do from a position of privilege. The, the thing that I thought was interesting, though, is you also talk about the missing value proposition within that because that's something that within my, my own career, I spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, whenever I train people, I spend a lot of time talking about understanding your own, your company's value proposition, understanding what you're bringing to the table. And these platforms have two different value propositions they have to constantly do. And every company does. You have the value proposition within your employees, and then you have the value proposition within your customers. But it definitely feels like the people that are involved especially within the nonprofits didn't understand the concept of the value proposition that they need to bring to others to succeed. Yeah. And this is, this is, uh, you know, other researchers have found this also, which is they, they, uh, you know, a lot of them start with an, an ideology or, or, a, you know, there's, there's something they want to do and it's, it's something really good. So whether it's reclaim your pantries or, Time banks were started to help unemployed people who didn't have cash to buy services. Um, maker spaces are, you know, there to make it possible for everyone to have, uh, to be involved in making and to be creative. So they, they start with really good aims, but um, they, so if, if they're not offering something that people need and want, they're not, I mean, that's the value proposition. They're, they're not going to succeed and, or they'll succeed in a way that just reproduces the values of the founders, which is what, you know, we were finding in, in some of these cases. I mean, they were great for the people, the, the sort of privileged, white, highly educated people who started them because it reflected their values and what they liked. They just had a really hard time expanding to uh, be appealing for, you know, a wider set of people. But that was part of what they wanted to do from the beginning. They didn't want to just cater to people like themselves, but they found it hard to break out of that. Sure. Now, the, the time banks, to be honest with you, kind of bothered me in a way that I didn't expect them to bother me. Um, the idea that you had a lot of people on there that were from a position of privilege oftentimes um, white collar and they'd be looking for blue collar work like electrician or Hey, somebody do handyman work in their house that they didn't know how to do. Um, and it, 
you mentioned that uh, there's obviously not many people willing to do that because it's such, or willing to do it well. Like you didn't have electricians willing to do that. But the idea that, hey, I can just bake a plate of brownies and have somebody come over and do my electrical work, it felt very exploit, exploitive, uh, exploitative. If you're a white collar person who has an educated job and you're asking somebody who's blue collar and say, well, your work isn't as important as my normal job. Here's a plate of brownies in exchange for the stuff that you make a livelihood out of. Well, okay. So yes and no. So there sure. is that range of skills on there from the, the sort of, you know, things that most people can do like drive or bake a plate of brownies. But the, the white collar workers also had skills that would be very valuable to the plumbers and electricians and that are expensive, but they weren't in the same way that the plumbers didn't want to offer their skills, the lawyers or the, the uh, programmers and so forth didn't want to offer, many of them didn't offer those skills. So they could have actually had a productive exchange if an electrician is getting a website out of the work or, um, you know, tutoring for their kids or, you know, stuff that's expensive or um, uh, various kinds of medical or healing stuff. I mean, some of it you have to watch out with licensing and so forth. But um, so I think it could have worked, but the, the problem was because you, there's like a, let's call it the $15 an hour economy, or maybe it's $10 an hour, depending on where you live. Um, which is baking brownies or driving or babysitting or something. And then there's the, there are these much higher skilled things. And one thing we found among the white collar workers was they didn't want a computer program in the time bank because they were tired of it because they did it all day or they didn't want to, um, you know, lawyers weren't offering uh, legal services. You know, they might be offering gardening or something. And, you know, you can see that too, that people, they're coming to this as an extra extracurricular, but I think that if you had um, if you had a a uh, maybe a two tier thing, and remember it's not a bilateral, so you offer something to someone and you don't they don't have to give it back to you. You know you you get a credit in your in your account and then you can get something back from anyone. But yeah, the lack of blue collar skills but there that i think that's also like a cultural dimension to it you know which is sort of a class dimension this was a lot of super highly educated uh white people in this time bank i i also think that sometimes white collar work though is dependent on bureaucracy or organization at times like clearly a lawyer can do some services that make sense broadly but if um i think of chandler bing on friends where he always would, he'd get asked what his job was and he'd say like, I'm a data management supervisor and everybody'd be like, what does that mean? And he's like, I don't really know. And somebody like that doesn't really have a skill to be able to offer from their typical career on a time bank. Yeah. Yet if they're involved in it, they're asking people who have very practical skills, which typically blue collar work is by its definition, usually very practical. Um, yeah. It seems like there's a difference in class between that. Yeah. We didn't have many of those 
those kind of bureaucratic <laughs> folks in the time bank. They did tend to be more professionals who had who had marketable skills. The the issue was more like, you know, I remember the one is like, I code all day, I want to change, I want to install thermostats. Mm-hmm. It's not that comp you know, it's a skill you learn, but it's not that complicated a thing to do. It's not like plumbing or electrical work. Sure, sure. And of course, and programming can be something that's very valuable, although it, it kind of just depends. It's not something you need on a routine basis, obviously. Yeah. But the now, other thing about the blue collar mm-hmm. work is because they're like really, you know, there's a lot of um, barriers to getting into that work that's highly restricted in terms of the, you know, the way the entry into the profession works. You have to get accepted for apprentice and so forth. So most of those folks are not uh, finding it hard to sell their services. So they don't need an extra outlet, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's almost impossible to get an electrician, at least where I live, just because <laughs> they're just not enough electricians for the demand. So that, that's another reason they're not in the time bank. If you had, if anybody could, could move into plumbing, electrical in these trades and they're, they, they, you know, the, the folks in it couldn't get enough work they probably would show up on the time bank. Sure. Now, as we're kind of coming to an end, though, I do want to ask regarding this. I found it really enlightening when you mentioned a person who was white collar talking to one of their friends who was blue collar, mentioning the idea of the time bank, like, hey, we share different skills. And the person who's blue collar is like, well, I do that all the time. You know, we, you know, I, I have friends and I say, hey, I'll take care of this for you and I'll do that. Another thing you mentioned was the idea that one of the people mentioned how they had an auto, you know, they had gotten auto repair and they didn't know anything about their mechanic. They didn't know him. And it fascinates me because my father-in-law is a farmer out in Iowa. He, he knows exactly who his auto mechanic is. He's been using the same one for, I think, 30 to 40 years now. And it feels like there's a, difference in terms of the connection, like an atomization that you're separated off, you're walled off through the way that you participate in the economy that is different and distinct between classes. Yeah. And that first example that you gave, it was actually one of the members of the team who was out and about Mm -hmm. and, you know, mentioned this to someone she knew and this is, there are also researchers who have found this. So it's the working class communities have tended to have more of this reciprocal um, uh, relations of doing favors, sharing things and so forth. Then in, as you move up the income scale, people got away from that. I mean, it used to be much more common across the whole society, more economic interdependence. Um, but as people got richer, they were able to go to the market for services and didn't have to rely on, on family, friends, and community. So the example I like to think of is sort of, because um, I think it's one a lot of people experience in their own lives through a life cycle effect, which is like getting a ride to the airport. When you're younger, you get your friends to take you to the airport or maybe moving, helping you move. As you get older and richer, you don't ask your friends to do that for you. You get a taxi, you hire movers. And so you kind of think of that as happening across the class, uh, you know, the class uh, spectrum for the society as a whole. And 
uh, one of the one of the findings in in the research is that when people have tried to introduce these digital versions of like house neighborhood sharing of items and so forth into community communities more working class communities where that kind of reciprocity is still there they fail because people don't need the platforms they're doing it anyway and you also find it it's not just in traditional working class communities you'll find it also in communities of of what i've written about uh, so-called downshifters people who are kind of opting out of the fast-paced corporate life and they're you know they're living kind of slower paced and less income more time they do more community stuff and you see it outside of cities more you know smaller towns and rural areas and so forth there's more of that so yeah absolutely that's that is and, and this was you know these platforms and these community sharing things were to a large extent started by uh pretty privileged white uh young people who were lacking this in their lives i mean that's why they love love the idea of the time bank also to connect with people they love the ideas of these of this connection um the one difference is the tool libraries. I mean, those have a long history in African-American communities because there's a lot of DIY work in uh, people's homes, mm -hmm. uh, but tools are expensive. And so you'd have these informal tool libraries that would develop in African-American communities where, you know, one person would have the tools in his shed. He'd lent them out to people and so forth. Um, so, yeah. Um, but then they people started uh, founding tool libraries about ten years ago, like on that on that model. It it re it brings to my mind. I keep popping up in my mind while we're talking about this. That scene in the Sandlot where the kids who play at the neighborhood um, ballpark every single day they're constantly playing, and then they have the kids come up like right up in their bikes with the uniforms and everything, and they're the you know, they're on a baseball team, you know, an actual baseball team, and they end up playing against each other. It, it reminds me of that where it feels like the, the class dimension, the people that are more upper class or upper middle class um, look to fit into formal organizations, whereas the rest of society is comfortable with informal organizations. Is there a reason why these people that seem to want that deeper connection don't just simply move to a different community, move to a different area that they can have those tighter connections, adjust their life slightly so that they can um, make that difference. I mean, you're in Boston um, or at least in that area. I imagine that South Boston is very different in terms of the community than other parts that are wealthier in terms of Boston. Well, you mentioned that in the notes you sent me beforehand. South Boston has gentrified. It's it's. it's oh, okay. <laughs> um, so the 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 sharing the sharing platform started out as urban phenomenon. They're all city based. I mean, they've spread out beyond that now. And the people, the young people who joined them in the early days, they're in these cities because that's where the opportunity is. So mm -hmm. it's not so easy for them to just relocate out to a small town. Some of them will as they 
you know, if they form families and have children and stuff, they will, they will do that. But uh, these are people who are trying to create some of that small town, some of those small town dimensions in an urban environment. And there's, there is a hunger for that and it should be possible. Um, it, it's been hard uh, and the, the corporate platforms haven't in the end offered it but even the nonprofits have found it challenging to, to create that kind of community. It, it's just, it's not that easy. Where, where that connection is already there, um, then the sharing stuff, you know, is a lot simpler to do. Okay, to kind of wrap things up, uh, I'm going to ask you a question that's a little bit different. The, a lot of these platforms have obviously disrupted the economies that they're in but many of them are still unprofitable. We look at Uber, we look at Lyft. Um, I, I couldn't get my eyes off of watching videos about WeWork when it was going through its IPO because it just blew my mind that it was losing so much money and they thought that it was a growth company somehow. Is, are these platforms even sustainable in the long term? Are they going to disrupt the community or the kind of infrastructure that we have in terms of many other industries and just leave chaos in their wake. Um, are, are, are these platforms going to be something that's here to stay? The platforms are here to stay for sure. Um, the economics of the different services, it, it's a mistake to think they share in economics. I mean, they have some common features, but ride hail is so different than, lodging for example i mean airbnb is profitable it takes a reasonable fee from each transaction mm. uh etsy is pro you know ride hail is different because they priced it way below its cost and they can only they're so the investors are subsidizing it and the they're squeezing the drivers to unsustainable levels i mean really awful awful treatment of the drivers it's because the market isn't that big. You know, they, they priced it so low so they could just wipe out taxi, wipe out all their competitors, including public transit, dominate the market, and then jack the price up. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully that won't happen. Hopefully they will be forced into, um, you know, a smaller, higher price service. The idea that everybody should be able to snap their fingers and get a private vehicle to take them wherever they want within seconds, you know, it's just, it's, Let's use let us Kevin will yeah Kevin our public transportation sector. Um, you know the the fact is Uber and Lyft priced competitive with public transportation for a while with their with their pooled options. That's so, crazy. Yeah, I mean so ride hail ride hail's a disaster. I think um, the food delivery. I mean just to to be profitable, the services need to cost more for the most part. Not. Um, not all of them, but I think that's the uh, that's the uh, that's the rub. And they a big part of what made consumers flock to some of them was the low cost, but they were unsustainably low, either because they're not paying the true labor costs, the true service costs, the environmental cost. Um, so the platforms are here to stay, but not necessarily at the scale that you know. $120 billion valuation of Uber, which was a crazy valuation at the time. And of course has been shown to have been so wildly inflated. Probably um, still crazy today. 
Yeah, it's still too high today, but it's come down a lot. Yes. Yeah. The uh, Kevin O'Leary, I think it is, encourages people just not to have cars right now in urban settings because he's like, the ride hailing services are literally subsidizing your rides. Yeah. Which is crazy. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, the uh, It's interesting to hear about something that I think of these as, as not just organizations, but as new institutions. And I think that when you think of it that way, it's important, even though it's about economics, sociology, it comes back to politics because at the end of the day, politics is about the creation of the institutions and what kind of institutions we want to have in society and the way that we shape those and we make sure that they reflect our values. And I think that that touches on all of this. So it was a great conversation. Thank you. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Brianne Kane for making the effort to introduce me to Juliet. I'd like to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find their songs on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the great behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. I also write a blog where I review works of political science. Every week I write a new review and publish a new podcast, so please subscribe. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.